I'm Ariane Elfant, and this is Death the Podcast. Death may be defined as the destruction or permanent end of something. At Death the Podcast, we are looking closely at what happens when something ends. We listen, learn about, and discuss the stories that surround the subject of death. These stories bring up much more than feelings of fear and sadness. They offer opportunities for connection, for hope, and sometimes even for humor. Ultimately, if we are open to exploring death, we create greater potential to experience life. My guest today is Pamela Scholzvik. Pamela is known as the death writer, but the story about how this came to be, how she came to write her MFA thesis on the subject of death, and ultimately publish a book entitled Death Becomes Us, is a compelling one. Pamela's original plan was to write her thesis on all the weird jobs she had held, However, during her attempt to contact her graduate school instructor to discuss her idea, Pamela's phone call was repeatedly diverted to a funeral home. When her instructor finally called her back, Pamela's mind was filled with thoughts about the funeral home. Things like, who would want to work there? What would it be like to touch dead people? And what kind of person would be drawn into a job like that? It turns out her instructor, Diana, was on the other phone line while Pamela was attempting to call her. For some reason, Diana's phone worked like this. If someone tried to call while she was on the phone, the other caller was diverted to a funeral home. Another dimension to this story, while Pamela was attempting to call Diana, Diana was on the phone discussing the loss of one of her favorite writers, David Foster Wallace. Diana had just learned that David had hanged himself. Pamela took this series of events as something that was meant to happen. The phone call to her mentor led to the formulation of a thesis that focused on exploring professions that deal with death. Once this was decided, Pamela was confronted with a much greater obstacle than a topic for her thesis. Pamela had lived her life afraid of death and in many ways afraid of life. Pamela, the death writer, welcome to Death the Podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. You did two years of research for this book, during which time you had a wide range of death-related experiences. You describe yourself as emotionally going from grieving at a funeral to crying over a dead man's body minutes before his execution. In the very last sentence of chapter one of Death Becomes Us, you write about your first brush with death, the loss of your grandmother when you were a teenager. You write, death has the power to change everything. Can you tell me what you meant by that? Well, I think that the contemplation of death, I think we don't want to think about it because if we think about it, it kind of invites it into our lives. And um, the way that my mother and I dealt with the death of my grandmother was just to kind of, well, it happened and let's move on. Let's not talk about it. Because if we if we talk about it and think about the implications of death, it, um, it shadows everything. Because um, then it's like, well, then I'm going to die and you're going to die. And so it's it's an overwhelming thought, I think, not only for myself, but for many. And death and the fear of death can either maybe force you to live, like I better get out there and do something, or it can inhibit you from living because, golly, if I open up my door, what can happen? Mm-hmm. And at that young age, when you experienced the death of your grandmother, what was it for you? Um... I I didn't have anyone to process the feelings with. Um, My mother wasn't around a lot. She was working. She was basically a single mother. 
And so I just, I was confused about it. I didn't know how I was supposed to deal with the feelings. So it was just kind of like, well, that happened and I don't, I'm sad. And I didn't get to say goodbye to my grandmother because it happened really quickly. She was diagnosed with cancer and then she was hospitalized and it was right before Christmas and I wasn't allowed to go in and have a conversation, which pretty much sucked. Yeah. How do you think it would have been different if you had been able to have a conversation? Um, well, I think that what makes you grieve for someone is maybe, yeah, you're sad that they're gone, but also the things that you weren't able to say or do with that person. So I think that it's important um, if someone is dying that you have that conversation, what they meant to you, um, goodbye, I'm sorry you're leaving. Um so I didn't get to do that. Yeah. And she didn't get to have the other part of that with you. Nope. So things have changed a lot since then. Yes. <laughs> Just a little. <laughs> how? Let's talk a little bit how they have changed for you. Well, um, doing the research for this book, um, I have become, well, the death writer. Um, I feel like I want to talk more about death with people. And I found that people want to talk about death. Um, I've hosted death over dinners. And whenever there's a death-related story, people forward it to me and they want to talk about it. Um, so I feel closer to people because of death. Um, because I don't think many people want to engage in those conversations because they are scary or... Um, planning our death or um, admitting that we have a fear. So so people find you knowing you have this openness about you that is not going to be pushed away, the subject matter. Right. Yeah, they can talk to me about death and I'm not going to go run and hide in, <laughs> in the bathroom <laughs> like I used to. If somebody in their family died, I'm you know, I don't have magic words that are going to make them feel any better, but I know that my presence is important. Yeah. If they want it. And I don't mind sitting with them. I think the subject of how to engage people with people who are grieving is so important. Um, I'm wondering what you've learned about what people need or don't need in those moments of grief. I think the most important thing is to ask, what do you need? Um, because we're not psychic. We don't know. And everybody grieves differently. Um, I think there has to be a willingness on your part to just sit with someone if they're grieving, if that's what they want. Um, I know for me personally, when I experienced my first major loss, that um, I really um, enjoyed having people make me food. It sounds weird, but having people bring me food um, and being with relatives, you know, and I'm a pretty isolated person for the most part, but I found that in grief, I wanted people around. But that doesn't say that other people, maybe they want to be alone. But just being willing to ask someone, what do you need? And it's amazing that sounds like such simple advice, but that I, I would say is one of the hardest things for people to do when somebody is sad. Um, what do you need? It's intimate to ask somebody that question. That's a yes. And grief is very intimate. Um, it's, um, 
I mean, you know, my experience, it's, it's raw and, um, and I certainly don't, I mean, I've always, I wrote about it in the book. I don't like people to see me cry. I, you know, I don't want to appear wounded, but that's how you feel when you're grieving someone you love. It's raw and, and a lot of times you don't know, but you know, I knew, uh, a sandwich would be nice. <laughs> I want a sandwich <laughs> and, um, and just to sit with other people and talk about the person who's gone. Yeah. Since this journey of yours, I'm wondering, what are the words dying with dignity mean to you? Um, to die on our own terms. Um, you know, I think that when people become ill, um, I think our society, it's like we will do anything to save you, but not look at the quality of your life or the end of your life. I don't think, I don't think doctors know how to do that, to talk about end of life care. And it's like, we'll just save you, save you. Um, and then there's nothing more they can do. Um, and I think with, uh, the official death with dignity, being able to die on your own terms, if you are terminal, um, in certain states, you can, make the choice to end your own life and I think it's I hope we're moving that way in America I want to shift gears a little bit and ask about uh, your experience of developing a relationship with an inmate on death row and then bearing witness to his execution um, I just was wondering if you could talk a little bit about this sure um, I didn't I don't I can't remember how I got the idea I had interviewed several people at that point um, about their about their professions, working, you know, embalmer, coroner, um, a death photographer, and I thought it would be interesting to meet someone who knew the day they were going to die, because even the person in hospice doesn't know the exact day. It's um, so I got the crazy idea to write to a death row inmate in Texas. Um, so I went on the Texas Department of Criminal Justice website and. I found the least scary man I could find, and I wrote him a letter and said, I'd like to not talk about your crime, but how you feel about knowing the day you're going to die. And he wrote me back and said, well, my lawyer doesn't think it's a good idea for me to talk to you. And, and I was like, oh, okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> that solves Great. that problem. <laughs> um, so I didn't pursue another person. I just figured, well, that was my answer. Then, um, three weeks prior to this man's execution date, his name was Christian Oliver, I received another letter, and I was like, man, I have to go meet him. I, this can't be done via mail, the U.S. Postal Service. So that day, I didn't know if I was going to get on his visitor list, anything, so I just bought a ticket. Texas. And um, a couple days prior to his execution date, I arrived and I met him and talked to him about how he felt. He said, I'm a spiritual person. Um, this isn't the end. Then I came back the day of and he had unfinished business. He had a daughter that he'd never met. And he really wanted to meet her 
and tell her that he loved her. So I think that, you know, that was his dying wish. And so he was grieving, I think, for the loss of that. that and he had found out that all his appeals were lost. So he was sad um, that day. And, you know, and I was stupid and naive. And I'm just trying to, you know, help him, make him feel better. But really, there's, there was nothing I could do to um, make him feel any better about that. So, um, after his execution, I was standing outside of the Walls unit and, um, met his pen pal of nine years. And so we got to talk about him, sort of, you know, she's crying, she's grieving because she knew him. I'm crying. I have no, I just like, I can't believe that they just killed him. And then we found out that we could go to the funeral home, which is a couple blocks from the prison. And we went in. His family was there. And Christian was just on a gurney in the middle of the funeral home. And everyone was in shock, um, just silent. And I'm the one who loses it. It just sounds to me like you... Obviously, we're having your own set of feelings about what was going on, but that you were around so much feeling shock. I mean, I I can't even imagine what his loved ones were experiencing and being enough separated from it to the degree that you were, but yet present to all of it. I don't know how you wouldn't have burst out crying. Yeah, it was very emotional. And and it surprised me because I thought, I'm going to go, I'm going to meet him, get the t-shirt, leave. You know, I'm not going to connect with this. But how could I not? I'm a human being. He was a human being. His family, they're in pain, suffering, and I, and I couldn't walk away. So I stayed. I also wanted to ask you um, to talk a little bit about Dan and the story of his son. Okay. I divorced my hairdresser, and I have curly hair, and I'm very loyal to my hairdressers. And if somebody can figure out how to cut my hair, I will go to them. But I divorced my hairdresser when I lived in Colorado, and I went to a woman by the name of Heather, and the first time I met her, I'm getting my hair cut, and she's making small talk. You know, do you have any animals? And I was like, yeah, I got, you know, dog, cats, and a couple of kids, ha ha, do you have any kids? And she said, well, I used to. And when she said that, I just felt horrible and I became so nervous and I'm like what do I say how do I respond to that and then um I was just like well I'm writing about people who work with death I'm sorry um she's like oh you should talk to my husband he's in school to become a paramedic because of what happened with our son turns out um their son um he was two years old and he died eating a piece of pizza he choked and the ambulance couldn't find their house because it was unmarked, which a lot of the properties in my area were at the time, mountain community. And I was so afraid to talk to them because it's like my greatest fear, losing my children. So I'm like, I don't want to meet your husband, but I knew I had to. Um, the firefighter EMS 
workers were like my next place I was going to go interview. And I'm like, well, I'm going to meet Dan. And I met Dan and I decided to ride with his crew for the summer. And, um, and I, I just felt like I couldn't talk to him about it. Like I couldn't handle being present with his grief. And eventually I did. And I survived. He survived. And I think um, in some small way that my listening both to his wife and to him was a good thing. Because I think a lot of people, because we can't fix grief, we can't say something that will make it go away, um, that people just don't want to talk about it because they don't want to hurt their feelings or make them feel bad. But they're always going to feel bad. So somebody has to listen. And so I listened to them. Well, and that that particular kind of grief, like loss of a child, um, because it's in the wrong order of the way things are supposed to be, I think people who lo- lose children are some of the loneliest people with their grief in terms of not having much of an audience to uh, be able to support that kind of pain, especially when you have your own children, because it's hard not to think about what if that, what if that was me. Right. Yeah. Um, I think that they did both become very lonely. Um, I think Heather said, told me that, you know, people, old friends just stopped kind of hanging around because we don't, you know, it's like, I don't think it was like, we don't want to be with them. Um, we feel like this is something that has to be talked about, but yet we're so uncomfortable we can't talk about it. Um, and it is. It's my own mother. Um, her first child died, and and I'm pretty sure that, you know, it wasn't processed as it should have been. Kind of like, let's have another one so we'll forget about this. But you don't. Mm-hmm. Do you ever wonder, like, given, because you've, you've mentioned, you know, that you, when your grandmother died, that your mom just kind of kept you out of all of that, um, and then she lost a child, which, again, back to that kind of unimaginable pain. So it sounds like she is somebody who, who definitely uh, separated herself from the pain of grief, at least on any conscious level and I just I mean it is so interesting that here you are somebody who certainly wasn't like yeah I'm chill with death um wasn't like that's how you walked through the world no (laughs) no um my mother is a real trooper um she's a, a very pleasant puts on a good face for everybody kind of like a hostess but I think that she's hiding a lot of or you know she's dissociated from a lot of the grief she's experienced in her life and pulled up her bootstraps and moved on um I now through the help of therapy and I know that it, you have to process and talk about your feelings and your grief with another person um and as Katie Bachman, the grief counselor, said, people who are grieving are some of the loneliest people in the w- world, and you need to feel less alone. 
-hmm. Like, I'm not this weird person feeling these feelings. Everyone feels this way. We just don't like to get together and talk about it. Something else you write about in your book that was new information for me and was also difficult to read about is death photography. I get that a lot. Mm -hmm. I ask people, what, what did you find to be the most difficult? And um, a lot of people have no idea that there is this organization called Now I Lay Me Down to Sleep. And, and I'm like, ooh, how could somebody do that? Um, and it's a volunteer organization. If um, you're a photographer, you can volunteer to, um, to assist um, in this organization. And what it is is um, it's photography... Um, that's focused on the death of a child, um, a baby, whether it's stillborn or they know the child is going to die after the birth. Um, and it's usually nurses who contact the organization if the parents are willing to do it. And from what Carol had told me, she said most parents aren't thinking, I mean, they're not thinking about, well, maybe we should have a a picture taken um, it's after the fact when they re when the parents who've lost a child realize the importance of having the photos so they have physical I don't want to say proof that sounds callous but they have something physical that they can hold and say this is my child mm-hmm yeah and that's another that's another kind of loss that can feel so so not tangible and a photograph is yes um i think with miscarriage early you know women who lose a baby before you know sounds horrible it looks like a baby um or you know i've had two miscarriages and and that is like the biggest silence people just don't want to talk or even acknowledge that it's a loss it's just mm -hmm. like oh you'll have another one it, move on. It, let's move on. It's good it happened when it did. At least it, you know, at least it wasn't, you know, already born, you know. So it's sort of diminishing and making women feel like they're not validated, their feelings, like they're maybe, like their feelings are wrong for feeling sadness over this loss. Mm -hmm. And people don't really want to talk to you about it. At least in my experience, they didn't. No, I think that's I think that's very true. And from what I understand about grief, and from what you've really you know beautifully shared today, the less we talk about it, the more it, it stays with us in ways that can be pretty unproductive. Um, and I I certainly think women who have who have miscarriages, there's a, there's a silence to their grief. Either they silence themselves or they're silenced. Yep. which makes something painful all the more painful. Maybe that's part of why the whole photography part of your book is was hard, not just for me, but for it sounds like for other people too is I mean having having that visual representation make something real that probably a lot of us don't want to think about being real. Right. I think that Carol her you know, it wasn't her job. She was a volunteer. I think what she did was probably one of the more difficult things, walking into a room where 
the grief is just it's it is present and raw and it's you know it's just happened you know and um and her job is just to take a photo so that they have something yeah yeah and she's able to be present to that and do that job I don't know how she does it but she did (laughs) well when you give and you give her a presence in your book so again I think a very so many unique perspectives that either probably most of us don't want to think about um, or haven't thought about is even a possibility. And yeah, it's, um, I don't think a lot of, I think Now I Lay Me Down to Sleep is getting more national attention. Um, but for a lot of people who read the book, it was like, whoa, they do that? Mm-hmm. People do that? That's mm-hmm. crazy. And maybe that's why it is such a difficult chapter. Maybe they, you know, the person reading it has had a miscarriage and it, like, oh, yeah, I felt that way too. And maybe I'm, (laughs) because I was like, I haven't had any experience with death when I went into this. And yes, I had. I just didn't acknowledge it as a death. Yeah. But now I do. Well, you're very open about having social anxiety. And that predating, obviously, all of this. I'm wondering how doing this, how this journey has impacted you and your feelings about your anxiety. Well, I know now um, after, I didn't know it at the time, but um, after I moved to Texas, I went into a study out of SMU about social anxiety. And it was all about exposure therapy and repeating experiences that make you uncomfortable you know like for me they were (laughs) they were numerous um reading in front of people public speaking um using public restrooms like really weird you know I thought they were weird um so I learned after doing the exposure therapy that I had done it with death I just didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> I was just you like... You did the ultimate exposure <laughs> therapy as far as I'm concerned. Yes. Um, so I repeatedly exposed myself to um, to death. And, you know, it's not like I want to, you know, I feel like I want to hug it out with death. I'm much more comfortable with the idea now. And um, I have surrendered to the idea of death, which I think ultimately we have to that accepting it, it is going to happen. We don't know when, but it's a good idea to realize that, yes, this is going to happen. It's going to happen to everyone I know, to me, to my animals, and it's natural. What are you going to (laughs) do? So, yeah, death exposure therapy is pretty much what that book is. I just didn't know You it. developed your own death exposure yeah. therapy, essentially. <laughs> yes. Don't try this at home, <laughs> What do your children say about what you write about? <laughs> um, they're cool with it. I mean, I, in the book, um, I did take them to a funeral. It was their first funeral, and it was for a death row, another death row inmate who I met. Um, I, I'd never met him, but I communicated with him. And and I thought this would be a great way for them to go to a funeral 
when they don't have any connection with the person who died, just so they could see what it was all about. Mm -hmm. And some people may think that that's weird. Um, and my kids, I've asked them about it, and they're like, yeah, that was weird, but, you know, um, it wasn't that weird. And then when they got to go to the funeral of their grandmother, they were a little more familiar with it. And did it lessen the pain that they had? No. But it wasn't a foreign concept. Mm -hmm. It's like this is what we do. When someone dies, we celebrate their life. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think it's weird at all, especially given their mother's connection to the subject matter now. Yeah, they're pretty, I mean, we talk about it openly. It's not like we talk about death every day, but, you know. It's not a taboo either. No, and when we passed, when we passed the Museum of Death, I'm like, no, we're not, gonna go. <laughs> we're not going there. And this everyone expects me to go. But I'm like, no, that's sensationalized death. You know, if you want to see the Museum of Death, let's go to, you know, an oncology ward. And then you can see, really, what death looks like in America today, not serial killers and things like that. Mm -hmm. I am so glad that I got to read, not just for this time with you, but I feel like I learned, I learned so much I needed to know um, on an intellectual level, but just like emotionally really connected with, with your words and with you. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. You're welcome. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. The word death evokes all sorts of personal feelings, images, and stories. These stories are amazing, and sharing them connects us more fully to life. I'm Ariane Elfant, and you have been listening to Death the Podcast. Join us for our next episode in this series. This show is produced and engineered by Eric Merle. Our associate producer is Jill Gross. Our theme music, It Happened, is written by David Milling and is performed by David Milling and Charles Milling. To hear more of David's music, go to his website, davidmilling.com. Our social media director is Jolie Robichaud. If you're listening to this on iTunes or Stitcher or some other podcast app, if you can take a moment to rate and review us, that's how other people find us. You can find Death the Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, or at deaththepodcast.com. Death the Podcast is a production of INO Broadcasting. Labor Day signals the unofficial end of summer, but not the end of your outdoor projects. Lowe's helps you do it right and helps you save with Labor Day deals throughout the store. Shop now and get two bags of Stay Green Potty Mix for $12. And keep your lawn looking neat and trim with a Craftsman 2-Cycle 17-inch gas string trimmer now $20 off at just $119. Whatever's still on your to-do list this Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Offers valid through 828. Soil offer excludes Alaska and Hawaii, U.S. only.